Welcome to On Mic with Jordan Rich, the podcast that celebrates conversation with creative people, people who have something to say. Today, I have two guests, and I guarantee you'll be riveted. With me is a returning guest, novelist J.P. O'Donnell, who's crafted some very exciting detective novels featuring a Boston private eye named Gallagher. Well, he's got a new work of nonfiction called Living on the Fringe of the Mob, and he's written it in conjunction with a man who was on the fringe, Steve Sachs. You'll read them all in the book, but you're about to hear a few excerpts, true stories about the New York mob from the 1960s through the early 2000s. Steve was not a quote-unquote made man, but he did have connection to some of the highest-ranking and notorious mobsters in New York City by virtue of his long-standing childhood friendships. So it's time to turn the curtain back, peer in behind it at some pretty tough customers with a guy who survived it all. Stephen Sachs, the subject of living on the fringe of the mob. And as we get set to go on mic, my first question for you, Joe, how did you and Steve meet up and how did this project get off the ground? Sure. Well, uh, Steve and I are both members of the same club here in uh, West Palm Beach. However, uh, I didn't know Steve. And I was scheduled to play golf one day, and it turns out he was in the same group. And he said to me, I've been looking for you. And I said, <laughs> looking for me, why? And he said, uh, you're the guy that wrote a book and they made a movie out of it. And I said, yeah, but we're going out to play golf. I'll talk about that later. And he said, no, I, I want you to write my life story. And I said, I, I'm a fiction writer. I, I don't do that. But he persisted. And I met him for breakfast about 10 days later. And I said, okay, tell me in uh, 30 seconds or less, why would I want to write your life story? <clears throat> and he said, I, I grew up in Brooklyn, and my childhood friends were the Gambinos, the Columbos, and the Bananos. Hmm. And I knew these guys my entire life. So we had a nice breakfast. He gave me more details, and I came home and... Uh, Walked into my study, and my wife said, "Where are you going?" I said, "I'm going to. I'm going into my study. I'm going to write chapter one." <laughs> and that's how it got started. Well, you mentioned those names. How could you not be intrigued at that point? And one more right. question for you, Joe, before I turn it to Steve, um, sure. and that is the way you put the book together. It it reads like one of your novels. You know, your your Gallagher novels because it's. It's thrilling. You don't know what's going to happen. When you were in the process of interviewing Steve, was your mouth open? Were you agape at times? Yeah, I, I knew that many of these stories were compelling. And uh, the more he told me, the more interest I had in trying to finish this book. And I interviewed him uh, Tuesday and Thursday mornings at breakfast at our, over at our club. And I did that for about a year and a half to gather all the information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Steve, let me let me address some questions to you. And thanks for being here. This is fascinating. The book really is terrific. And let's talk about you growing up. The story begins when you're obviously a kid. You're in Brooklyn. And set right. the scene for us. Tell us a bit the early days and some of the neighborhood kids. All right. Uh, what occurred was my mom and dad moved us to Eldritch Lane, which is on the borderline between Brooklyn and Queens and the beginning of the Woodhaven section of Queens. We were right on the borderline. Franklin K. Lane High School was right up the street mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and it had a bad reputation. Okay, uh, growing up with these kids, I played a lot of stickball, Ringolerio, and Ringolivio, and uh, different games. Uh, these kids, we kind of formed a clickler gang, whatever you want to call it, and they were always into gang fights and. It, it was a thing in that part of Brooklyn. Uh, there were other parts of Brooklyn like Flatbush. They didn't have going on what we had. And I was the only Jew in this area. Mm. And because of it, I was intimidated quite a bit and picked on quite a bit. And growing up, it just made me harder. And uh, it built me into what I became during the course of uh, my life. The uh, if we played stickball, but you know what, we played stickball in the street, and if we broke a window, a lady's window or a couple's window, elder people, we always had the respect to hang around and ask each other who's got a quarter, who's got a dime, who's got a dollar, and we'd call the window man, and we'd get him to fix the window. And that, that was like a code we had. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, other than explaining it that way, I, I wouldn't know what to say. Well, Steve, uh, Steve, let me ask you this. Uh, you talked about being Jewish. I'm also Jewish, and I know how tough it can be when you're a very distinct minority. Was there a, a particular moment in time or a particular year when you realized you passed the, the test, you became accepted by the same people who might have picked on you? Do you, do you recall when, when you became, when it was less about you being Jewish and more about you being who you were? Yes, uh, probably in the late teens, 18, 19, and 20. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, I also moved out of that neighborhood when I was 14 and 15 into Far Rockaway in Queens. And uh, it was primarily a Jewish area. And I then became friends with uh, three, four Jewish kids, and we hung out together. So at that period of time, some of that uh, intimidation went away, okay? And uh, I enjoyed the two or three years that I spent in Far Rockaway Mm -hmm. before I graduated and went on to college. I, I think the question is always, what was it like for the kids to look at the adults who were in the mob? What, in other words, uh, we've all seen the movies that, that take right. place in the 50s yeah. and 60s, and the mob guys are uh, driving fancy cars and they're throwing money around, but the kids in the street are just looking at them and maybe getting involved. Can you recall what the mob was sort of like overall? You just talked about the code of honor. What it was like as a kid looking at it from your vantage point? All right. Well, you know, in the younger years, we were hardly acknowledged, the kids. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't fully accepted because of being a Jew. So I used to have three fights a day because of being a Jew. Going to school, coming home, lunchtime, etc. But as far as looking up to some of these guys, you know, we we assumed at the ages 8, 9, 10, and 11, that uh, they were heavy, heavily involved in some sort of action or, or activities that uh, they had money to spend, et cetera, et cetera. 
But uh, in truth, uh, we didn't discuss much about them being involved in criminal activity, mm-hmm. not at that early stage, right. at eight, right. to, 8 through 12. Let, let me go back to Joe for a sec. Uh, just to put things in context, Joe, and I know you've done a lot of research on this, and so have I. The the mafia, the mob, call it what you will, in the 50s, you had the Kefauver uh, hearings, and then you had the Valachi hearings. You had a lot of activity with the mafia being sort of outed back then. Am I correct? That's correct, right. Joe, Steve offered an amazing treasure trove of information about what it was like on the street as a kid observing and growing up with these guys. You know, we often hear about criminals and mafia and so forth after they're established, but in a sense we get to see the birth of some of these people. Well, he knew some of these guys, obviously, uh, as as a young kid and when he was a teenager, at that point, he wasn't. In, they weren't involved in any criminal activities. As they got older, they be, they more or less joined their fathers in the criminal enterprise, right. as known as the mob. Mm-hmm. And he knew those guys, remained friendly with them, but didn't really partake in any of those activities. He was separated from that. But then, as he got older, he met uh, individuals. Uh, who were very involved, and they had connections to these people. Right. And Steve has a, exactly. he has a comment he wants to make. Sure, Steve, yeah. go ahead. Joe, um, it wasn't all the childhood friends along, you know, at those ages. I also met new mob guys that knew some of the kids that I grew up with, and they even asked about, about me growing up in that area, like... Uh, Frank DeAngelis, he uh, looked into how I grew up or where I grew up. For some reason, they always tried to follow uh, that line to see how we came up and who we knew mm-hmm. coming up. At the age of 12, my parents wanted me out of that neighborhood and sent me to my cousin's house on President Street. And if you look up the annals of mob history, the Columbos were around President Utica Avenue, mm-hmm. Carroll Street, and further uh, towards the city. And I went over there on weekends to stay at my cousin's house. My parents wanted to get me out of trouble, out of the, all the gang sure. fights I was sure. getting into. So they sent me over there on a Saturday morning. And I went down into the basement of my uh, aunt and uncle's house, along with my cousins who were three and four years older than me. And they were friendly with the Bananos and the Columbo. <laughs> and they were all working out, barbells, weightlifting, things like yeah, that. Yeah. And uh, that's how I got uh, associated or exposed to them at that period of time. Uh, you, you mentioned, Steve, going to college, obviously, and, and staking out your own life and career. And uh, right. as, as you move through the business world, and the book tells us a lot about this, I mean, you, you can't help but come into contact with these people. How did you manage to skirt the line so, so effortlessly? Or maybe it took a lot of effort. I'm not sure. How did you manage to keep things on the up and up while still retaining these relationships? As my father had 
this meat business. It was small. He uh, sold the restaurants in New York, diners, stuff like that, uh, coffee shops. Uh, in the meat industry itself, in New York City, okay, including mm-hmm. the Bronx, west side of Manhattan, 125th Street, Harlem, Fort Apache, okay, all of those areas that had the meat industry within it, uh, the mafia, the mob was greatly involved. People don't realize how much they partaked or, or acted in the meat industry. You take the Castellanos, for example, all right? Big Paulie had his hands in a lot of butcher shops, restaurants, uh, meat distribution areas throughout the New York area, okay? And I constantly bunked into them. Even when I wasn't working with my dad, I worked for an outfit like Plymouth Rock, which made hams. I was on the night shift as a manager after I left my father several times uh, and took other jobs like construction also. Uh, I bunked into them constantly. It wasn't, they were all over the place. Johnny Diogatis, who is Johnny Dio and wasn't mentioned in the book, was partners with Jaime Zahn when I was about 13 or 14 years old. I remember walking up and down 14th Street, and he was always uh, in and around in a suit. They owned American Kosher, which was a meat operation. Um, So that was another individual. Mm -hmm. But the Castellanos constantly had their fingers in in major distribution and uh, cutting areas. They were involved with, uh, well, the uh, provision company that went down for tainted meat in mm. their hot dogs and provisions. Uh, Low Keats was his name. He was involved with the mob. Uh, anything on 14th Street in Manhattan between 9th and 12th Avenue, 14th Street down into Gansward Street, the mob was constantly involved. Was it- there was an operation called Bohax, okay, that uh, they had their fingers in everything that moved in and out of that operation. Yeah, my question, remember- my question, Steve, if I can just interrupt, is was it possible for anybody in that industry or similar industries to say no and what would that have meant? Would that have been risky for your for your life and limb to say, no, I don't want to have any involvement? Well, it depended upon if they were already involved in the situation. I mean, you take the guy Salen up at H&H Poultry. He got murdered because he was distributing poultry to Wallbounce and Fancy Foods, uh, Short Pride, uh, was run by Castellano. Uh, he wasn't there every day. He had people running it, like Jack Cunningham. And uh, they he was told uh, to back out of all bounds, and he didn't do it. <laughs> and then he got yeah. shot. Wow. Okay? So there are things that went on that uh, that were never really 
discovered or uh, or uh, sure. you know, criminally prosecuted, etc. So, what about so, your what about your business world life? What how okay. much of it was was involving interaction with mobsters because you had no choice? Well, <laughs> because I had no choice. Well, that's my question. Maybe there was a right. choice. <laughs> All right. Well, here, here I, I started to buy my dad out of the business because I wanted to go big mm-hmm. and not sell the restaurants in New York City. We had them all. We had O'Neill's Balloon, Ginger Man, uh, Maxwell's Plum. Recall those places? Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway. Uh, I decided I didn't want anything to do with restaurants, and I wanted to strictly go to supermarkets. And uh, what was the question again? Well, the, the question was, was well, the, uh, it's fascinating to think that you can be a legitimate guy, and you are, right. and and try to stay clean, and, and they get their clutches into some industries. And, uh, you know, how do you avoid that? How do you okay. keep from getting well, Charlie, involved? Charlie Anselmo in the book is called Charlie A. That's a real name, real person. Uh, as a matter of fact, his son contacted us, and he even wrote a review about the authenticity uh, of what we described in the book because he knew his father was a loan shark and a uh, broken broken arm type of guy. Mm-hmm. And Charlie... Charlie had a strong contact into Wallbounds and a few supermarket chains throughout uh, upstate New York, etc. I was introduced to Charlie as a younger person, and Charlie knew that I wanted to get into the supermarkets. And he made the connection for me with Wallbounds. Wallbounds was a lot of the supermarkets were intimidated. Key food in Brooklyn, okay? Uh, Wallbounds, Bohacks, uh, A&P. Mm. I can go on and on in regard to them accepting uh, monetary, you know, situations and having to do what the mob wanted them to do. All right? Wallbounds, for example, I know for a fact that... Uh, the poultry coming out of Fancy Foods, which was run by Castellano, hmm. uh, they wanted to dominate Wallbounce, as they wanted to dominate Key Foods, et cetera, et cetera. And then I was told, because I was then developing the hamburgers for the supermarkets, I started to improve on the packaging and the quality, and I was able to knock everybody on their ass hmm. that were my competitors because of the quality and the type of packaging. So I was asked nicely, okay, hmm. to deliver my hamburgers instead of the warehouse to Wallbounce, to deliver it to Fancy Foods, which was run by Castellano. Yeah, asked nicely. Or owned by Castellano. <laughs> yes. Okay? So naturally, I got a call, and my people, my guys, my connection, asked me to go along with it because Big Paulie probably asked them to talk to me. So I started delivering my hamburgers to Fancy Foods, who in turn put my hamburgers on their poultry trucks and made the delivery direct. Well, 
eventually, the guy running it, a guy by the name of Jackie Cunningham, and I had issues, which is well described in the book. I didn't like the guy at all. He wasn't well liked. He always bullshitted about his connections. But it wasn't bullshit. It was real. But he used to throw it around and put it in people's face. I didn't enjoy that type of intimidation because I had fought intimidation all my life. Anyway, uh, Jack yeah. wasn't paying his bills properly. And I got pissed off, and I told him I don't want to do business with them anymore. And then again, I got a phone call in a soft manner asking me to continue. Yeah. Well, eventually it came to an end. Okay? So, go ahead. I just wanted to ask Joe to jump in here, Joe, uh, the writer, and the fact that we learned in the book about the intricacy of the meat industry. I mean, I know I never knew anything about that, and the web that was forged by the big bosses. Uh, was this news to you too, Joe? Things like this? Absolutely, news to me. I, I had no idea. Uh, many of my uh, mother's family was in uh, the food industry, and I never heard them mm. talk about this at all. But what uh, what impressed me about Steve is that he would reject their pressure, and they respected him. They didn't. I mean, no one ever came after him and threatened him uh, like a hitman would. Uh, that you've got, you're going to have to do this with us. They respected the fact that he was going to be independent, and he was going to give them a good product that was not tainted. They never, they never challenged him on that. Yeah, yeah. Steve, what about the law? Were you ever suspected of of anything? Were you followed, no. wiretapped, harassed, any of that stuff? No. Uh, when that activity was going on, like when they were tapping the Bananos and the Colombos and the Campinos over in Brooklyn, uh, I would get a phone call and then a little meeting set up with an underling. And I was told to stay away at the periods of time when authorities were monitoring the mob in Brooklyn. So a friendly reminder, here's, because yes. we respect you, just stay away, just don't get involved. Right. I exactly. see. Exactly. I see. Stay away for a period of time. Because I used to visit a plumbing shop in Brooklyn under, under the L in New Utrecht Avenue, and the plumbing shop was just a front. It was a front for the Bananos. Yeah. And... Uh, the big boss would tell my connection to tell me not to come around for a period of time. Hmm. Interesting. What about the violence? And uh, were there times when you got that cold chill down your spine, Steve, when you heard about something or you saw something? I mean, the book goes into no. some detail about what happened around you, but uh, were you ever physically threatened or felt scared? Yeah, uh, in the story about pork spleens, uh, Lou Wasserman, big yep. guy, right. uh, he was a knuckle breaker, leg breaker. He was with the Jewish mob, and uh, everybody used him for collections, all right? Mm. And I had an incident where my father, prior to my purchase, buying him out, brought in an illegal product called pork spleens to add to the hamburgers, which was a no-no, illegal. And uh, I caught it prior to it being utilized when I came back from vacation. And uh, I called the United States Department of Agriculture, 
on my own father. Jeez. Oh, God. Okay. There's an honest uh, man. Then I went downstairs and told them to move the hell back to Florida and stay there and let the lawyers handle the buyout because I wasn't about to get involved in that illegal activity. But Not to mention unkosher. <laughs> <laughs> but they sent Lou Wasserman around, and uh, there are people who know of him. And uh, he was a collector and a bone breaker, a Jewish guy. And he came up to the plant, and he wanted to collect on the invoice. And uh, I wasn't about to pay the invoice. I took it away from the controller. And he came up, and I had we had large windows. Uh, it was a printing building on 38th Street originally. So they had large windows, really heavy concrete floors. And I had an office up on the second floor. Uh, we occupied four out of the six floors of the building. And uh, I had opened up the large window. Mm-hmm. And Wasserman came up. I was sitting at my desk. He threatened my father, who was downstairs. And uh, he was told to come up and see me. And when he did, we had a conversation, and he threatened me. And he made a bull run at me. And... I was pretty big and strong. I was only 5'11", but I was built like a moose. <laughs> I was, I was two, two, 200, 205 at the time. Yeah. And he made a move. He was slow. I was fast. He went, out, went halfway out the window. Okay? I grabbed him by the shoulder and he asked for the pants. And I just moved him right into the window, hmm. which was open. And I slammed the window down shut. Good move. Big, heavy window on his uh, back of his shoulders, etc., and neck. And I kept him there. And I told him, you know, Bill's not getting paid. Come and pick up this illegal product. Or otherwise, I'm going to put it out on the street and let it decross. Uh. So, so let me just briefly uh, go off the track. Uh, when Joe and I met, and uh, he bought me a, a tape recorder, and if you knew know me, I'm walking around with a flip phone yet. <laughs> I don't have an iPhone. That's okay. I will not change. Okay? No, 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 that's okay. But anyway, Joe bought me the tape recorder, and we taped some of the you know stories and all, and I wrote out some of the stories. Well, you know, Joe wasn't skeptical. But this stuff occurred, and people have borne it out. But a gentleman out of Brooklyn, who is my connection to the Bananos, moved to Florida about a year and a half ago. And he's about 78, okay? He moved to Florida in Miami area. And I asked, we connected again, and he asked me to come down for lunch, which I was willing to do. And uh, I said to him, do you mind, because I sent him the uh, manuscript to read and to correct if my Mm. memory was not quite sharp enough, okay, which it was. And uh, his name is Sonny P. in the book. He looked it over and he said, Stevie, it's great. It's what it should be. I said, should I change any other names? 
He says, no, nah, keep them the goddamn same. <laughs> he says, some of the guys, most of the guys are dead, et cetera, et cetera. Well, anyway, I turned to Joe one day, and I said, Joe, would you like to go down for lunch and meet this individual who's the main character in the book? And Joe said, yes. And I brought him down there, and we ate at an Italian restaurant for three and a half hours while Sonny P relayed a lot of the stories and verified the integrity of the conversations that mm -hmm. I put into it, the book. I'll ask both of you uh, one more question. First to you, Joe. This uh, gentleman you're sitting across from, I mean, has lived an amazing life. At times when you're writing down some of these things, were you scratching your head wondering how could this be? Just in general, what was your reaction at as this project unfolded, Joe? Well, it, you know, I believe, Steve, but part of me actually... I had no way of verifying it because some of the stories were 40 years old, 50 years old. Yeah. And um, when I met this gentleman in Miami, I mean, he looked me straight in the eye and he said, everything in that book is true. And I witnessed half of it. He looked like uh, central casting from Goodfellas. <laughs> so, uh, awesome. That's great. I believe I believe them, and we had a great conversation. Uh, I was happy to meet him. Uh, I offered to acknowledge his name in the uh, acknowledgments, and he said, absolutely not. I don't mm. want anyone to know yeah. who I am, and uh, I left it at that. He, verif he verified parts of the story word for word that Steve had told me. I have the greatest faith in Joe, Steve. Uh, we've worked together for many years now and uh, and very, very credible. So my final question for you, Steve, comment on the idea of these people doing the things that they were doing some cases, and many of them were friends at childhood and friends later. So it's almost like the art and the artist. Can you separate the two? Talk a little bit about your definition of friendship with these folks in particular. Well, with most of them, okay, with most of them, because in the book, there's an individual that I disliked. There were a couple of individuals in the book I disliked. Uh, but for most of, most of the relationships that I had in friendships, there was a mutual respect and a belief in certain values of life in general. The respect that they had for the elderly, the respect that they had, whether the person was bad or not, if the loyalty was there, the respect that they had, they had a code of honor in regard to even those that were connected to them that had done bad things and they were on their last legs and they asked, will you take care of my family? So the top guys always did that and I had respect for that. All right. It was their code of honor, whether it was bad or good, but they took care of their families and of their people that they were surrounded with if they were asked. And that, to me, showed me a great deal of respect. I love the book, and I'm really excited about this story going wide. The takeaway for me, Steve, is uh, you stuck to your guns, no, no pun intended. Yeah. You, you were a man of character, and you did your thing, but also you could understand these were human beings, albeit some of them doing criminal things. The key word in the title is fringe. You were able to dance along that fringe like like anybody could. I, I, I'm impressed, and uh, it's, a, it's a story that needs to be told. So thrilled that Joe and you met up. Uh, you meet the most interesting people in Florida, don't you, Joe? Yeah, yes, 
certainly do. <laughs> Gentlemen, uh, thank you so much, Steve Sachs and, of course, Joe O'Donnell. And the story is out there called Living on the Fringe of the Mob, available on Amazon, anywhere you get fine books. I wish you well with, uh, with this and future events. Thanks. Thank you, George. Thank you for the support. Living on the Fringe of the Mob, a brand new book by Joseph P. O'Donnell, as told by E. Stephen Sachs. It's a page turner. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for his help in publishing this and many other podcasts produced right here at Chart Productions. To find out more about the podcast, my book, voiceovers, and more, visit jordanrich.com. And thank you for subscribing and downloading this podcast. We appreciate the nice ratings. They make a difference as well. Till next time, this is JR saying, as always, be well, indeed, so you can do good. Take care. <laughs>